million. So what did they do? Well, dad quit his job driving for Pepsi. Mom uh, decided she wanted to build a new home. She wanted it to be located somewhere near water so she could have a beach. She wanted a dream kitchen in it, and she wanted large bedrooms with walk-in closets. The whole family decided to take a vacation to Disney World, and they had two teenage boys, so you know what teenage boys want. They wanted a car. Only these two boys, one of them wanted a Lamborghini, and the other one was much more modest. He only wanted a Dodge Viper. So that's what some people do when they win the lottery. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of unnecessary time letting you know how all of that family's dreams played out because it doesn't matter. But my reason for bringing this up is to ask how you would consider living your life, how you would consider living your life after you realized you were a winner. Because the fact is, it's not just an abstract question to ask it. It's, in one sense, each of us who know Jesus have won the greatest prize that we could ever win. Amen? Um, the fact that we are living, that we are breathing, that we are thinking, that we are walking and talking and laughing and working and creating and and doing all of these things in the freedom and the prosperity of one of the most blessed nations that's ever existed. The reality is that means, that just those things mean that we are more rich than the majority of the rest of the world. Uh, we worship in a beautiful church building. We have the Bible. We participate in worship freely. We, we even live in southwest Kansas on August 12th when it's in the 70s. <laughs> That's pretty cool for August especially. <laughs> we sit on padded chairs in an air-conditioned room. Some of us have enjoyed our choice of either caffeinated or decaffeinated coffee already this morning with some wonderful pastries. Hmm. We're winners. But again, at the top of that list is we know Jesus. We know Jesus. That makes us somebody. <laughs> God has blessed us. Steve's Steve's testimony goes so perfectly with what I want to share with you this morning in this uh, seventh in our series of sermons on Can, only you, can you Only Imagine? And uh, thank you, Steve, for that. And, and again, I, I love it when God puts a good plan together, you know. Uh, he, he, uh, he coordinates everything so that it all, all points toward the same thing. But I, I want each of us this morning to consider a question. How will you live the one and only beautiful life that God has given to you? If you're 63 or if you're 89, it's still not too late. If you're 16 or you're 22, it's not too early. How will you live your life, the one that God's given to you? Well, Jesus gives us a very clear, succinct answer on how best to live this life, and it his solution for living life to its fullest may not be familiar to you in terms of what living a successful life looks like. Jesus said the best way to live is to serve. To serve. Go with me, if you will, to your, into your Bibles or on your Bible app to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter number 10. The joy of servanthood is even better than winning the lottery because it affords to us the satisfaction of... Uh, and this is kind of like I, I like to think of it. Uh, you know how when you, you take a rock and you throw it into a, a, a still lake, how, how the ripples just 
surround it and work their way outward and get bigger and bigger. bigger. I, I like to think of making ripples for God. Um, those ripples are going to be experienced both in this life and throughout eternity. They're never going to stop. And that's what Jesus, the lesson that Jesus has to teach his disciples here in Mark chapter number 10. I want to begin reading with verse number 32. They were on the road, speaking of Jesus and his followers. They were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. And we'll tell you why here in just a moment. But Jesus, taking the twelve disciples aside again, began to tell them the things that would happen to him. He said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Now, I want you to notice this. You've heard what Jesus just told him, right? But then it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, We want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it's for those that's been prepared for. Now look what happens. Another transition. When the other ten disciples heard this, heard what James and John had asked of Jesus, when the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus then calls them over and says to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. And then listen to this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this life that you've given us, Jesus. Lord, help us to recognize in this message this morning how blessed we are to have you in our lives. How blessed we are to be able to trust in you and to know that you will be with us even to the very end. So God, send your spirit to anoint our ears and our hearts. And as Steve has already said, make our hearts a fertile ground to receive your word this morning with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. The story begins by telling us that Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is leading them. The others are following, and, you know, this idea of servanthood that Jesus is getting ready to teach them on, servanthood doesn't mean that you let other people walk over you. Neither does it mean constantly saying, let's do whatever you want to do in whatever way you want to do it. That's not what being a servant is all about. Here, Jesus is actually modeling servant leadership which begins with a clear sense of where they are going. What did Jesus say? We are going to Jerusalem. 
And then look how specific he gets. And, and b- before I say that, just let me add this. Whether, if you're leading anything, whether it's a, a small group or a business or, or your family, if you don't have a clear sense of mission, that is a clear sense of where you are going and where you want to take that group, having a clear focus on it, you're going to find people will take advantage of you. Now, having said that, let me say this. As Jesus is leading the way, he pulls aside his 12 disciples, the closest of those who are following him. And he says, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. He will be condemned to death. He'll be mocked. He'll be beaten, and he'll be killed. Now, I'm sure you would agree with me that's not a pretty picture of what they're going to do. Matter of fact, if you look at the words from Scripture that we read, the words betray, condemn, hand over, mock, spit, flog, and kill, that's not what we want to do or have done to us, right? And I'm sure after hearing what Jesus had told them, Once they get up to Jerusalem, I'm guessing some of those disciples were thinking, "Uh, Jesus, I'm not real sure about this we part. Uh, maybe, Maybe that's what you have in mind, but we didn't sign up for this. Now, I'd like to think that's what they were thinking, but apparently that thought didn't even cross their mind because we see that James and John's response indicates that They just didn't get it. I mean, here Jesus tells them for the third time. He's already told them in Mark chapter 8, verse number 31, chapter 9, verse number 31, and here again in chapter 10, what is getting ready to take place with him when they get to to the city of Jerusalem. But apparently James and John missed it. His words of warning must have gone completely over their heads because they had their own agenda. They want to discuss with Jesus about what his soon coming kingdom is going to look like, at least for them. I mean, they know Jesus is going to be on the throne. He's the king, right? But Jesus, we're going to ask you something, and if you would just do it, it's, it's what we desire. One of us wants to be on your left hand and one of us on your right hand. Now, where that comes in the midst of this whole discussion about what's getting ready to happen in Jerusalem, I'm not sure. But that just tells me that they were so occupied with their own agenda that they didn't have time to listen to Jesus tell them about the mission for which he came to this earth. Jesus has been perfectly clear about what's going to happen. And what he's saying to them is, you know what, if you want to share in my glory, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to be on the winning side, you also have to share in suffering. Well, that's not what we were thinking. (laughs) They didn't get it. And here in this third attempt to talk about his impending death, James and John pull him aside, and and this is kind of what I'm hearing. I, I know what we read, but it's kind of what I'm hearing. Jesus, we want you to do something for us. Whatever we ask of you, we want you to do it. In other words, Jesus, we have this blank check that we want you to sign. Would you mind just Jesus signing your name right here so we can cash it? And as usual, Jesus answers their request with a question of his own. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? At this point in time, you have to understand that James and John have spent more than three years actively following Jesus. They've just heard Jesus declare for the third time he's going to be betrayed, tortured, and murdered. And then they ask of him, Jesus, when you're... When your kingdom party really gets cranking, can we have the best seats? Can we have the ones closest to you, Jesus? 
Now, I don't know about you, but it seems very insensitive. It seems very dense. It seems very cruel for them to ask in light of what Jesus told them is getting ready to happen in his own life. It's insensitive to Jesus, but it's also unfair and it's cruel to the other disciples. And that's what we see happening next. It's almost like you have 12 disciples, two of them, James and John, they have their own agenda. And part of their agenda is somewhat like the reality show on TV, Survivor. They're ready to vote the other 10 disciples off the island. They really are. Servanthood is the best way to spend our lives, but it isn't easy. It goes against the grain of our souls. It goes against the trend of our culture. And that's why Jesus said in verse number 42, you know that those, uh, not verse 42, was it verse 42? Let me see. Yeah, it is. Verse 42. He says, You know that those who reg- are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate or lord it over the Gentiles, and their men who are in high positions exercise power over them. Well, that's for sure. I mean, every time a Gentile would pick up a copper coin, they would see the head of the, the emperor, whoever that was. At that time, it was Augustus. Later on, it was going to be Tiberius. And on that coin, every coin had a description that said these words, he who deserves adoration under that picture of the emperor. So they knew what it was to be dominated. They knew what it was to have power lorded over them. I mean, that almost sounds obnoxious and arrogant to think that somebody would put a coin beside... uh, uh, a phrase on a coin beside their picture that that says words like he who deserves adoration. But hear this. Whenever we reject a lifestyle of servanthood, we're being obnoxious and arrogant. In other words... As Paul put it a little bit later on in Romans chapter number 12, he said, you are to live your lives as living sacrifices. Present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Now, how many of you would say, oh, I can't wait to be sacrificed? (laughs) You know why they had ropes on the altars of sacrifice in the Old Testament? To tie the sacrifice down. You know why the sacrifice had to be tied down? Because he didn't want to be there. And then Paul comes along and he says, You must present yourselves to God as living sacrifices, which is your not over and above and beyond reasonable service, your reasonable service. Presenting yourselves to serve. Now, unfortunately, this drive for power and glory isn't just an external reality that happens to some people. How many of you here this morning are human? Okay. If you're a human and you're breathing earthly air this morning, a desire for power and glory is inside of each one of us. It's there. It's, it's part of who we are. Notice, notice that James and John's unbelievably callous and self-serving attitude. When did it happen? It arises as they are in a conversation with Jesus. Jesus is saying, we're going up to Jerusalem, guys, and there the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and arrested and, and murdered. And in that conversation, somehow James and John say, Hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. We want you to do something for us if we ask it. Now, the reason I'm making a big deal about that, friends, is that callous and self-serving attitudes can arise even when we are serving Jesus. That, that's kind of scary to me when I think about it. It scares me to think that I can know Jesus, I can talk with Jesus, 
I can use all the Jesus jargon or lingo that you can imagine and be busy serving in the church, listening to every sermon, even preaching a sermon, and still be utterly callous and self-serving, driven by ambition, lust for power, not a spirit of servanthood. Now, that's scary. But it's a reality for every one of us who are human. So how do I, the question then becomes, how do I live as a servant when I don't always want to be a servant? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Even when I'm doing things for God, we struggle. Even when we do things for God, we struggle with the desire to be recognized for what we're doing. A desire for power, a, a, a desire to have a, a status that testifies to who we are. So how in the world can I go against the grain of my own flesh and the flow of this culture that we live in and become a servant? Well, here's the good news. It doesn't start by us saying to ourselves 15 times a day, I got to do better. I have to try harder. I have to act nicer. I have to be less selfish. That's not going to do it. It starts by getting your eyes off of yourself and focusing them on Jesus. Because, catch me on this, He is the master servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for us. That's what he said in verse number 45. Now, as you probably figured out, Jesus knows all about servanthood. The entirety of Scripture, it's this big, huge, amazing, exciting, adventurous story about how God came to serve you and I. To set us free. And once we've been set free, then we get to join in and become a part of the story. Right? Christ invites us to become players in the big story of servanthood. In verse number 45, it says that this revolutionary idea of servanthood begins with Jesus coming not to be served. Again, not to be served, but to serve. Clearly and undeniably. Following Jesus is good news. You see, it's impossible for us. I want you to hear me on this because this is going to make everything else I'm getting ready to say make sense. Following Jesus, it's impossible to follow him. It's impossible to be freed from our sin and our selfishness. It's impossible for us to pour out our lives for others and even impossible for us to please God unless Jesus first serves us. We don't think about that. We, we, we think about serving Jesus. We, we think about doing what Jesus wants us to do. Friends, can I tell you something? When you got saved, you didn't get saved to help God. When you got saved, God started helping you. Did you catch that? God started helping you. Jesus became your servant. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus serving us. We we don't need another religious leader to give us rules for how to live and how not to live. We need someone that will free us because we are captives to sin. And empower us to walk in real love. And this life of following Jesus is taking him seriously when he said, I came to serve you. John 15, 15, Jesus, John 15, 5, excuse me. Jesus said it this way, one of the most quoted verses in the entire word of God. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me, the one who remains in me and I and you produces much fruit. 
because you can do nothing without me. You know what you have to have before you have branches? You have to have a vine for the branches to come out of. You you can't say, well, I want to be a branch and not be attached to the vine. Jesus said, I'm going to give you all the things to make you healthy. I'm going to give you all the things that will make you successful because that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to supply all of those ingredients to you as my branches to make you produce fruit and flourish. But then he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do you, how do you flourish? You first flourish by serving. Every time Jesus tells us to do something, things like loving our enemies, forgiving one another, forgiving those who hurt us, living lives of purity, sharing the good news of Jesus, giving generously of our time and our, our, our money. He's asking us in doing, asking us to do those things to, do, to be served by him. When you become a follower of Jesus, you're not God's helper. God is your helper. That's why becoming a follower of Jesus requires this thing called humility. We have to admit that we need help. We have to realize that we need someone to serve us. And that's something that you're never going to grow out of. Once we stop, once you stop depending upon Jesus, it's like you stop breathing. And your spiritual life will at that point in time begin to suffocate. You have to maintain focus on Jesus. He's the master servant. How's Jesus serving us, you ask? Well, verse 45 again. It says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, on the cross, Jesus serves us by paying our ransom. Now, that's a phrase you don't often hear anymore. Some cases you do on the, hear it on the news. But in Jesus' day, paying a ransom for someone meant to release or to deliver them or to set them free. If we hear of a kidnapping on the news... What do we hear happens when a a person with means is kidnapped? They call and ask for a ransom. An amount of money for which then they will set the one who has been kidnapped free. Jesus said, that's what I came to do. I came to release you from sin. I came to deliver you from the power and the hold that sin has over you. I came to set you free And then John takes it a step further and he says, and I'll tell you something else. The one whom Jesus sets free is free indeed. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Um, When someone in Jesus' day wanted to set a slave free, what they would do was pay the price for redeeming that slave and the slave would then become a free man. This idea of Jesus ransoming us, friends, leads to this central truth. Apart from Christ, we are all hostages, held by sin, held by legalism. You you fill in the blank. Uh, You know what? Jesus didn't set me free from sin to, to release me to a bondage of legalism. Bondage is bondage. He set me free so that I can be free to worship Him. That I can be free to serve Him and to serve others. We're enslaved to our past sometimes. But we're dead in our sins. It's not a pretty picture to think that you've been forgiven of your sins, but you're still held captive by your past. I already know the answer to this question, so I won't even ask it. I was going to ask how many of you have a past. We all do. We all do. But thanks be to God. He has taken those sins of the past and cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered against us again. 
And so when we carry around that sack of guilt for what we've done for which Jesus has forgiven us, we come and say, oh, Jesus, I'm just, I'm just still so depressed about what I used to do and who I used to be. And Jesus is up there saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I've forgiven that. It's, it's in the sea of forgetfulness. So who are we to bring it up if Jesus has already forgiven it? Don't live in the past. That's why Paul said, as we talked about last week, I've left the things of the past behind and I press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. God came to us in the person of Jesus and he did it as a rescue operation. He sent Jesus to come and break the bonds of our sin, to set us free from the power of sin, to help us escape the penalty for our sin. You know what the penalty is, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, through Jesus Christ, is eternal life. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the old way. He offered us freedom, freedom to pursue an intimate relationship with God. Thank you, Jesus. He gave us freedom to pursue being whole. He gave us freedom to pursue holiness and become more and more like Him day by day, week by week. Back in the Second World War, some American soldiers were being held in a prison camp. They were hostages that did not have any hope. Every day one of their buddies would die or another one would, would lose heart. Why did they die? Why did they lose heart? Because no one was coming to rescue them. But somehow this particular group smuggled in a shortwave radio. And while sitting in that prison camp... Before too long, an announcement came over the shortwave radio that the Allied forces had broken through and for all practical purposes, the war was over. The Allies had won the war. The soldiers now had a deliverer. And any day now, their freedom from this prison camp was going to be made a reality. And in the same way, friends, those of us who trust in Jesus, we know... And we believe that we have been set free by Jesus. We've heard the news of salvation. We've believed that good news. And we're now enjoying liberation from slavery. Liberation, if you will, from the prison camp of sin. The bondage to sin. And best of all, we don't have to worry about the penalty of sin. Jesus took that for us. He died. What did we get out of the deal? His righteousness. How many of you think that was a good trade? <laughs> Amen. Every time we engage in small acts of servanthood, we're participating in this grand story of Jesus to set people free from bondage. If we don't, if we don't keep that story in, in front of our eyes and in our hearts, we, we'll find ourselves getting bogged down in our small and petty and pathetic and complaining stories about how somebody else has more power and gets more glory than we do. That's exactly what was happening here in Mark chapter number 10. You see, the, the toughest part of servanthood, the toughest part, of, I guess I should say it this way, the toughest part of servant leadership is releasing the I, getting our ego out of the way. Servanthood is love. And before we can love, we have to release this, this big, fat, all-consuming ego, the, the demand that the world should really evolve or revolve around me and, 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 and my needs, my preferences, the things that I want. Get rid of the eye. James and John and the rest of these disciples are focused on their own personal agenda. So Jesus tells them here in verse number 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm called to drink? Or can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys don't get it. But you need to understand my mission, 
my purpose runs through a cross on a hill. I've told you three times, three times, what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem? What's going to happen to me? And you guys still don't get it. That's my mission. That's my purpose. Is to be turned over into the hands of sinful men. They'll kill me. They'll spit upon me. They'll mock me. They'll flog me. They'll murder me. And that's all the penalty for your sin. That's why I'm doing it. I'm taking upon myself your death. The consequences of your sin. Ah, but then he says, but three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And death will no longer be your enemy. You're going to be set free from the power of death and the grave and all that it requires is that you allow me to be your servant and then you become servants of one another. Wow. The other ten disciples, they caught wind of this private conversation between James and John and Jesus. And when they found out what James and John were asking of Jesus, they're indignant, and rightfully so. I mean... Think about this whole picture. Isn't it great? Here Jesus has announced his own death sentence. He's describing in detail his betrayal, his torture, his murder. And the 12 people on this earth that are the most close to him, the most experienced in following him, what are they doing? They're at each other's throats. They're backstabbing. They're judging. They're complaining. They're finger-pointing. I once heard a story of a missionary who was a medical missionary in Africa. Her name was Helen Rosevear. She was the only doctor in a large hospital in Africa, and her time was precious, and they were, they were, there were constant interruptions with treating patients, and, and, and there were shortages of medication and shortages of people, shortage of nurses. And all of these shortages were causing this medical missionary to become increasingly more impatient and irritable with everyone around her. Well, finally, one of the African pastors who was a part of that medical work insisted, he said, Helen, I want you to come with me. And he drove Helen to his humble house and told her that she's going to have a retreat. Two days of silence and solitude. She was to pray, he told her, until her attitude adjusted. All night, all through the next day, she struggled, she prayed. But she said later that her prayers just seemed to bounce off the ceiling. Well, at the end of that two days, it happened to be a Sunday night. She sat beside the pastor who had come back to his house and they built a little campfire and humbly, almost desperately, she confessed that all of her prayers, all of her silence had left her stuck. With his bare toe in the dust of the ground, the pastor drew a long, straight line. It looked like the word I on the dusty ground. He said, Helen, you know what the problem is? There's too much I in your service. He gave her then a suggestion. He said, Helen, I've noticed that quite often you take a coffee break and hold hot coffee in your hands waiting for it to cool. My suggestion to you is that while you are holding hot coffee in your hands, waiting for it to cool, ask God to cross out the eye and make me more like you. And in the dust of that African ground, Helen Rosevear learned the master principle of Jesus. Freedom comes through service, and service comes by releasing our egos. It's no longer an eye 
It's the cross. Someone once said the main problem in the church is that we have people following a crucified Savior who have a totally uncrucified ego. As we release our precious, fragile egos into the hands of God, then and only then can we start serving like Jesus. Notice how Jesus does it, though. And this is really the heart of what I want to say to you. While Jesus' disciples are fighting and bickering, Jesus simply takes the initiative, calling them together, and I'll paraphrase it this way. He says, okay, guys, time out. Time out. Let's all cool down and huddle up for a moment. I I like to think of it as the first come-to-Jesus meeting in history. Jesus calls this meeting designed to deal with the conflict that's surrounding him. And Jesus, as a servant leader, takes the initiative and throws himself into the midst of the conflict. By the way, servants don't dance around conflict. Servants deal with conflict. And Jesus is the greatest conflict manager that you'll ever find. He tosses himself into the middle of conflict, and rather than saying, you guys work this out, this isn't my job, you guys work it out. Jesus sees a need, and he takes initiative. Jesus tells them that they're not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles. But on the contrary, he tells them that whoever wants to become great among them must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among them must be a slave to all. Again, his mission, his purpose was not to come and to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus has has done this for us, friends. Now we can be a part of his story in rescuing others. The, the exciting thing about being a servant leader is that you can do it anywhere. You, you, you pray, you spend time with the Father. Steve gave us such a great illustration. You pray, you spend time with the Father. Your heart is tender to what God wants you to do. And, and when you get prayed up to the point where God says, okay, now I can use you, God makes you aware of needs. And he empowers you through his Holy Spirit to address those needs, to get in the middle of those needs and see what can be done about them. You're now a part of the grand story. Wherever you go, you have a a privilege of being part of this exciting soul rescue operation. I was thinking about this. I remember I was a 16-year-old teenager, and we had lost our youth pastor at our church and we didn't have anybody to lead us. And so our group numbers began dwindling. And finally it was down to, to three or four of us. And I remember telling my folks, I, I, I don't want to go to youth group anymore. I, I'm, you know, I was a follower of Christ, but I couldn't. I was having difficulty reconciling my faith with my desire to fit in with everybody else at school. That was the real reason. But I made my folks believe that it was because we didn't have anybody in youth anymore. I don't want to go to youth anymore. Well, they didn't honor my wishes. They made me continue to attend youth group. And so I did. Dashed down to the four of us. Sometimes there were only two or three of us. And at that time we had... We had youth group on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock before the evening service at 7. And so, I don't know how this all worked out, but the NFL football games never wind up by 6 o'clock. And so here I am, my favorite team's in the fourth quarter, and it's time to go to youth group. Didn't matter to mom and dad. You're going to youth group. So I went to youth group. All two of us, three of us. But something happened. We began to pray together. Just whoever of us were there. We began to pray that God would make us lighthouses to a dark and dying bunch of friends in our high school. 
We prayed that God would make us lighthouses to others in our church who had never been involved in a youth group before. We determined that we were going to do things together. What did we do? We went bowling. We played volleyball. We went out to Taco Tico after youth group, after church that night, to eat as a group. And amazingly enough, before too long, the numbers started to come. The numbers started to come. Then we, then we decided, you know what? We don't have enough time on Sunday night to play volleyball. So let's move our youth service to Monday night at 6 o'clock. Then we can play volleyball the rest of the evening, and then we can go eat at Taco Tico. Well, let me tell you what happened to that plan. God began to move in that youth group. The numbers began to grow. We began to really like one another. We began to care about one another's burdens, one another's needs. And there were times that we wouldn't even go out and play volleyball. We'd just gather around the altars at the church and sometimes 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday morning. We're still there. And God is moving and God's answering prayers. So we started getting excited about what was happening in our youth group. We started going around town and picking up kids who couldn't yet drive. We'd bring them to church. We'd bring them to youth group. We started getting acquainted with and developing relationships with kids who had never been a part of our group before. Long story short, for a while we kind of shared the responsibilities of leading those youth. But for all intents and purposes... I became a youth pastor at the age of 16 and had no idea what I was doing. Totally reliant and dependent upon God. For the next 12 years of my life and later Brenda and my life, for the next 12 years I served in that capacity. Caleb, I was never given a dime for any of my, my duties. Not one time. We served as youth pastors, and that group, when we left, was consistently 60 to 70 young people that really loved each other, really cared for one another. Our meetings, as I said, would last into the wee hours of the morning. We'd play together. We'd eat together. We'd, we went through a church split together, and none of our youth were affected by it. We kept together as a group. We never lost our love for or our desire to serve each other. You, you, this is the best thing about that. Today, many of those kids who are in that youth group are my closest friends. We communicate regularly on social media. We talk about all those wonderful days as a youth group. Occasionally, we'll start laughing uncontrollably about some of the dumb, stupid, fun things that we did. We even talk about the possibility of getting that exact group back together for a youth reunion. Man, you talk about warming somebody's heart. I look over at Hugoton, Kansas, and I see the pastor of First Assembly of God, Tim Singer. He was my youth. I look at First Assembly of God in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sam Reifkogel was part of my youth group. I see, God, I see these kids serving. Patty Strauss at Garden City, she's been leading the children all of these years. All as a result of what happened in that youth group. Not because of my leadership, but because we surrendered to God. We surrendered to Him. Most of all, the majority of us want to see the youth of this generation experience what we experienced, Caleb. A group that loved each other. A group that prayed for each other. A group that had amazing and fun experiences together. And who one day, we're hoping there's a Taco Tico in heaven. <laughs> because we're going to go eat together again. That's what God can do. When you're acting as a servant, you begin to see everything as I did as a 16-year-old kid. You begin to see everything in life as an opportunity and a privilege to bring the story of Jesus into the world. I got my eyes off of what I wanted. I wanted to fit in. 
I wanted to be like the kids at school. But God broke through and said, I have a greater opportunity for you. One that's going to pay dividends not just now, but throughout all eternity. And friends, that is the plan of God. That's the plan. To gather people together, just like us, into into Christian community. To form them, to shape them, to, to encourage and to challenge them. And then send them out to do likewise. That's how it works. It's an amazing plan. And it's so utterly subversive because here's the cool thing about it. Whether you're in ministry or whether you're a student, or whether you're a mechanic, whether you're an electrical engineer, whether you're a plumber, or a doctor, or a nurse, or a farmer, an oil field worker, you're like an undercover spy. <laughs> you're in that place, but you're doing something else. I, I, I kind of like to think, there's more to you than meets the eye. <laughs> That's what I want the world to say about us. There's more to you than what meets the eye. And that more is Jesus. Can you imagine seeing a need and feeling something stir inside of you that brings you to the point of weeping and then seeing yourself jump right in the middle of that need and see that needy person become a part of the kingdom of God all because you jumped in. Can you only imagine dealing with an issue? Boy, how many of you know we have issues? You see an issue that burns inside of you. And you bring it to the attention of a community of people of like precious faith in which you live and worship. And then you see that issue addressed and made known And out of your group, you become a blessing because you've dealt with that issue. That issue could be domestic violence. That issue could be poverty. That issue could be any number of things. But you're putting yourself into the middle of it. You're not saying, you guys work this out on your own. I didn't create the need. I'm not going to be a part of solving it. That's not a servant. Get in the middle of it. Engage it. Instead of saying, why doesn't someone do something about this? You plug in there and you make the difference. Worship team, would you come please? Ask God what you can do about it. That's the key. Don't be be content with living your life waiting for someone else to meet a need that you are already aware of. Make an impact. Live a life of servanthood. Can you only imagine being a part of the grand story of Jesus in the world in which we live? Heads bowed, eyes closed. For Jesus, to even to even fathom that we are a key to your grand plan in this world is overwhelming. But God, that's why you put us here. Some of us, like the Apostle Paul, you put here and my goodness, probably a high percentage of people that know you today are saved because The Apostle Paul finally found his purpose. You put some among us like Billy Graham who had the opportunity to preach the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people through the course of his long ministry. See millions of people make a profession of faith all as a result of him living out the purpose for which you sent him here. And then there are those of us in small, maybe even rural congregations 
who minister to 20 or 40 or 80 or 120 people every week. And we think, Lord, what's my impact? Why is it such a big deal? Well, God, it's a big deal because we didn't know personally the Apostle Paul. We didn't have the privilege of sitting under the ministry of Billy Graham. We're just a part of Trinity Faith Church. But God, when I, when I put it that way, the question that comes to my mind is, who has the harder job? Billy Graham, who ministered to the millions and fulfilled his purpose? Or those of us that you may have placed here to just minister to our family? Or to our co-workers? Or to our fellow students at Turpin or Liberal or one of those surrounding high schools, grade schools? And God, if, if we fulfill our purpose in leading one person to saving faith in you, the odds of us coming into contact with that one person that you created us to lead to Jesus are much more astronomical than those who've ministered to the millions. But God, we've got to be faithful. And it all starts with servant leadership. You were a servant to us. You gave your life to pay a ransom that we could never pay. And now, Lord, you're asking us to, to give our lives so that we can punch someone's ticket to heaven. Lord, it's a grand story. But each of us have a part in it. So, dear Jesus, this morning, as we close this service, I've been praying all for the last two weeks about this message today. That your Holy Spirit would just speak so clearly to that person who's still looking for their purpose in your plan. And that you would compel them, Lord, to make themselves available to serve others and become a part of your story. Again, with your heads bowed, and please, no one looking around. The only reason I'm going to look is so that I can be praying for each of you. You say, Pastor... I know God's got a plan for me. I know He's got a purpose. You may already know that plan. You may not have even been made aware of that plan, but you know it's there. And you may have either agreed to be a part of it or you've been running from it. But you say, Pastor, today's the day. Just raise your hand to heaven. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you, pray with you. Yes, I see those hands. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Holy Spirit of God, this entire series we've been focused on the practical steps of utilizing the empowerment that you bring to us. We've, we've, we've talked about how we can best be effective in being communicators of the good news of Jesus to our world. And Holy Spirit, it's all about you. You, you have to do the work inside of us. We can come to this, room, this place and sit in this room 
and listen to sermons from now until Jesus comes. Whether those sermons are good ones or whether they're bad ones, that's not going to be the key. It's about allowing you, Holy Spirit, to immerse us with your presence, to empower us with your power, to send us where you would have us to go and to say what you would have us to say. asking that you do that in the hands of those whose hands were raised this morning. Begin to just reveal yourself as never before. Begin to create a, an enthusiasm and excitement at the possibility of being used in the grand story of Jesus in the hearts and lives of those whose hands were raised. And we'll thank you for it, Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? Jacob, we doing breathe. We did this a while ago. And I know, I know the Spirit of God was really speaking to some when we sang it earlier. But I'm praying that he'll speak even more profoundly this time when we come to that part where we sing those words, I'm desperate for you, Jesus. I'm desperate for you. Don't ever become independent from Jesus. He's here to serve you. He's here to meet your need. He's here to do what only He can do inside of you. So let's sing it together.